It's not just, you know, page one of Google. I mean, there are some platforms that have entire sections dedicated to the topic and it all maps back up to it, whether it's different approaches, different story profiles, you name it. And so I think all of the above are like really important indicators of mass adoption, which I'm really happy to see. And while it may be counterintuitive, I think the actual lack of the mentioning of fire is a true indicator of its adoption because exactly. it just becomes the norm. It's not yes. like it was five years ago where people were saying, I'm doing this because I'm a part of the movement. It's like, no, I'm doing this because I'm mindful that this is relevant, that this is important. And whether I'm pursuing it or not, when it happens doesn't even matter. I'm incorporating it into my everyday life. Welcome to the Rich and Regular podcast presented by Success, where we explore life at the intersection of money. I'm Kirsten. And I'm Julian. And today we're talking about what's new with the fire movement. Yes. Welcome to May. (laughs) Welcome to May. Welcome. Welcome. Hi, Hi, May. (laughs) It's weird saying welcome to May because we're recording this in the middle of April, but presumably you're listening to this in May. Welcome. And we just spent the whole month of April covering some really important financial topics like tax jargon, life insurance, net worth. And I know there were just some listeners out there like, okay, so then like, if I do all this, what do I get? And the reason why I'm so excited about this episode, because I think this episode will start to reveal some of the prizes that are at the bottom of that proverbial Cracker Jack box. You know what I mean? I'm a crunch and munch man myself. But, uh, <laughs> I don't even know if they still make. I don't know if either one of those cracker jacks. Things, but <laughs> shout out to the older millennials out there who maybe have had. Both. <laughs> and because we are time traveling in this episode and welcoming you to May from the middle of April, I also want to say thank you to the team at Morningstar and give a pre shout out to all of the new people that we will meet in a couple of weeks. By the time you guys are listening to this, we will have just gotten back from their conference in Chicago, and while we're there. We're going to do a live podcast in front of a few hundred financial advisors, which should be really interesting. But we're going to talk about some of the shifts that we're seeing within the modern family and how those social shifts are changing the way that they approach their finances. And again, I think today's topic, financial independence, is right up there. Yeah. I mean, it's always weird for me to kind of, to your point, give a pre shout out, but I kind of know as a listener that sometimes that happens. And like you said, we're traveling in time. So hi to everyone or hi again to everyone (laughs) that we will be meeting in the future, in the future from (laughs) the past me. Welcome to May. (laughs) Oh, wow. I want to add like some sound effects in there. Yeah. So let's start with the definition. So we said fire up front, but I'll spell it out for those that aren't familiar. FIRE is traditionally known as the Financial Independence Retire Early Movement. It's a personal finance philosophy that emphasizes saving aggressively and investing wisely to accumulate enough wealth so that your living expenses are covered without relying on traditional employment income by the time you're in your 30s or 40s. Yeah, I mean, obviously it can happen, you know, yeah. in your 50s. For some people, it happens in their 20s, right? Yeah. But generally speaking, that's where we see most people aiming uh, aiming for. And I think the roots of the FIRE movement started in the 70s with pioneers like Vicki Robin, who wrote Your Money or Your Life. And her angle was really about environmental sustainability. 
But the popularity of the idea around financial independence really catapulted because of the early blogs in the 2000s, like Mr. Money Mustache and Early Retirement Extreme. And then it gained even more mainstream attention in the mid-2010s because there were these major articles that were written about it in distinguished publications like the New York Times and CNBC. And then J.L. Collins' book was published. J.L. Collins wrote The Simple Path to Wealth in 2016. And I think by that point, we had already been on the path for a few years. But one of the reasons that it's been dubbed this movement is because it offers an alternative path to traditional retirement that's based on financial freedom and pursuing your passions rather than just accumulating wealth for the sake of accumulating wealth. Yeah. And listen, I don't want to be so humble that I ignore the role that we've played in popularizing the movement. I think one of the things that we saw as we were Uh, admirers from a distance was that there were other applications and other motivations behind wanting to pursue fire. And we've kind of made that a bit of a cornerstone of our message, especially on our blog in the early years. Uh, And we've since turned that into sort of an exploration of the creator economy and really whatever else is to come, right? It's really been like a life-changing moment for us. And we kind of want that for other people. Now, with all that said, while we are happy with the growth that we've seen, and I'm not just talking about our platform, I'm talking about mainstream acceptance and acknowledgement of this particular movement, this is not without some misperception and criticism, especially in the early days. I mean, I remember there were just like a lot of people that were just like completely bashing it. Like it was like, it was anti-fire. Like they absolutely hated it. They thought it was- Funny to see how many of them have come around. As much as I hate to identify as a fire person. Oh, this must be what they were talking about, (laughs) right? And I hate that, you know, you all don't sound that dumb. (laughs) But back then you kind of did sound like, you know, true skeptics. What are you talking about? So anyway, I want to just sort of talk about those things and sort of react to them a little bit. They're kind of like oldies, but goodies. But the first one, like right out the bat, was that fire was just for white people and tech bros. And I think what people were doing were looking at the loudest voices, the most popular platforms, drawing some similarities about those people and painting this really wide brush about what the movement and the community as a whole was on a global level, which surprise, surprise, that's what humans in major media do, right? They make it simple, they oversimplify it. And in many cases, they use that sort of wide brush to paint the entire movement. The reality is uh, you could say that about any wealth building activity if we're being honest right like that's not just fire right yeah there's a lot of concentration (laughs) of wealth happens to be uh in people who have high income and happen to be white like that's the world that we live in so that's not something that is unique to fire you can say the same thing about real estate you can say the same thing about the internet age you can say the same thing about hedge funds right all of those things uh sort of lacked diversity and in many cases still lack diversity, but that's not necessarily a reason for you to do it. I think to say that, I'll just suggest that as a bit of a cop-out. I think back to a conversation that we ended up having with JL uh, a few months ago. It was actually on our other video podcast, which by now may be an audio podcast, but it's the Cashing Out podcast, which is inspired by our book. If you go and listen to that, we actually asked him about that. And one of the things that he mentioned I believe. Actually, I don't even know if we included that in that episode or not. But anyway, long story short, this is someone who's been there for a while. And he said, listen, like, it's not true, right? Like, we've been involved in this for a really, really long time. These are the people. And they just so happen to not have big platforms like everyone else. So people don't really pay attention to it. The second big criticism uh, that people give is really that fire movement is a byproduct of this 
inflated stock market that's propped up by Fed's interest rates and really just the greatest boom economy that we've seen, which is a reference to how well the stock market had done in the 2010s, right? They're basically saying, hey, these people aren't necessarily smart or anything like that. They're just beneficiaries of a great movement, right? Or a great investment environment. And again, I think you could say that about anything. Right. Like that's just, you know, like people took part. <laughs> who in, isn't? Like, who isn't? Right. Like, I don't know that that's a bad thing. Who I, isn't the beneficiary of ec- strong economic conditions? Right. I think what people is, are, are really criticizing there, and I think they're missing the point here, is that uh, there is this perception that people in the financial independence movement are positioning themselves as, let's say, stock market wizards or people who are sort of masters at money. But in reality, they anyone could have made money during that movement. Here's what I know to be true about people in this movement. They are proud passive investors. They're actually not taking They give away pride. everything that they did. Correct. They, like, they tell you what the plays are. They tell you that it wasn't overly complicated at all, that they simply decided to buy index funds and in some cases invest heavily in particular sectors that they knew were doing well and that they were beneficiaries of that. And so I will debunk that one as well. And then the last one I will say, is that the fire movement is really just the anti-work movement, that these people were just, you know, late Gen Xers or Gen Ys, millennials, people like us who just were lazy, didn't want to work. And I find that to be fundamentally false, right? Like they are hard workers. We are hard workers. They're willing to put their heads down and do the work. They're purpose driven. I think the real problem is, and this might rub a couple of people wrong, is that they're actually harder to manipulate. Right. Mm -hmm. They are not motivated by a dangling incentive of increased uh, salary or an inflated title. They know exactly how much money they need. They know how much they already have. They know how much or how much time it's going to take for them to get to where they are. And, And I think what oftentimes happens is those people are a little more difficult to manage by leaders or managers who really lean heavily on those kinds of incentives or misuse of power to actually manage them. And so all of that to say, a lot has changed. I don't know that those criticisms are valid. I don't know that they ever were, but I think that's that's sort of our point of view on it. I think there is one criticism that was valid because I know it's the thing that turned me off from pursuing it initially. But one of the criticisms that the FIRE movement gets is its focus on extreme frugality Mm -hmm. and as a side effect, privilege. You know, one of the key tenets of the FIRE philosophy is to live really frugally and save as much as possible, which can definitely be a useful strategy. It's what we talk about every week, but it can also lead to this unhealthy focus on cutting costs so much that you sacrifice quality of life. And so when I was first introduced to the movement, I would read these budgets and they wouldn't have any line items about hair care, which cost me personally thousands of dollars a year. Or they would deem things like self-care as inessential. And it's like, well, okay, maybe for you, but not for me. It's a very essential part of my life. And I think those early versions of FIRE were just very formulaic. And as a result, it excluded people who had cost factors that may have been out of their control, like high health care or a lack of affordable housing. And those kinds of things led to a dialogue about whether the movement was too focused on individualism and personal gain and not necessarily addressing larger social issues. So to your point about what we've added to the space and what many of our peers have added to the space is just kind of expanding the conversation beyond the formula of, you know, six important voices to say like, yo, if you have a family or different needs or different desires for your life, 
you can make your budget reflect that. Yeah. And to that point, I mean, so much of that, I think, speaks to uh, how I'll say uh, intimate the leading voices were, right? Like it was a small group of larger blogs that I think really represented the movement uh, as a whole. And now not only have do we see more blogs, but we see more means and more mediums rather of people communicating their story, their approaches, and sort of sharing all of that with the world. And so I think back to blogs. I mean, now I don't even know that blogs are even nearly as relevant as they were uh, back then. I'm hearing rumblings that blogs are coming back. I don't really know. I it's don't really changed know. into like a newsletter format. Right. But yeah, I mean, written word is not going yeah, to Yeah, the idea of the people internet. writing and communicating and distributing that is not going to change. But I don't know that nearly as many people rely on blogs as this sort of primary source of learning as they do podcasts. Right. right? We've seen so many more podcasts that are financial independence uh, focused, that really obsess about that, that break it down, that share stories. So there are tons of those out there. Uh, We now see so many more social media groups like you can have groups that don't even have necessarily uh, podcasts or blog platforms. They're just a group or a community of of people people. of like minded people that are there sharing tips, resources. They meet up sometimes. Uh, There are certainly more courses. And so if there are people who want to learn how to do these things, a lot of the people who have blogs and podcasts are also teaching those things for those who sort of want that one on one or community focused learning. For sure, we've seen a lot of growth on YouTube. That's a primary platform, uh, I would say, where people go, they search, they learn, and they really just go deep into the lifestyles and the approaches and the methodologies and all that stuff on YouTube. Twitter, if you're you're that type of person, there's all kinds of stuff. Yeah, Twitter, TikTok, you name it. Books. I remember when we first started, there were really only a couple books. We've written a book. Mm -hmm. Uh, Several of our friends have written books. Like there are significantly more books, diverse voices. There are more books coming, Mm -hmm. right, that offer different points of view. There were no movies about the financial independence movement before we started. And then there was Playing With Fire, which we were in. There was another one, which was just released, uh, I believe, in Canada. I think they're trying to negotiate the streaming rights. It's called Seeking Fire. Uh, and I think there's a third one. I may be blanking, but the, or that there's another one in the making. Um, I'll also say this. When I would reach out to financial advisors years ago and say, hey, what do you think about this? Because to me, I was like knee deep. And then I was like, hey, this sort of feels like a threat to your model. People didn't even know what I was talking about. Today, they do know what I'm talking about, or at least more of them know what I'm talking about. And some of them are even specifically marketing themselves as advisors to people who are wanting to pursue financial independence. So they're mindful of the movement. They're mindful of their preferences, their approaches, their sensitivity to fees, and all of those things I think are being incorporated into what they do. And then the last thing is, I mean, Gosh, I mean, you could argue that like finding an article about fire would have been niche 10 years ago. It was. And now, I mean, even five years it's not ago. just, you know, page one of Google. I mean, there are some platforms that have entire sections dedicated to the topic and it all maps back up to it, whether it's different approaches, different story profiles, you name it. And so I think all of the above are like really important indicators of mass adoption, which I'm really happy to see. And while it may be counterintuitive, I think the actual lack of the mentioning of fire is a true indicator of its adoption because it just becomes the norm. It's not like it was five years ago where people were saying, I'm doing this because I'm a part of the movement. It was like, no, I'm doing this because I'm mindful that this is relevant, that this is important. And whether I'm pursuing it or not, when it happens doesn't even matter. I'm incorporating it into 
my everyday life. And then the second part I'll say is that you now have a much broader adoption of sort of these sub components of fire. There used to be sort of absolute fire. I've achieved, you know, a portfolio or a network that has, that is 25 times what I consume on an annual basis. That's how it's defined. And now we're realizing that actually there are levels or step gates before you get there. Or you may never get there. Whatever it is, but like there are other paths or sort of gates, gateways before you get to that sort of absolute number that can really be enough to fundamentally change the trajectory of your life. And people are really latching on to that. So I think all of that is cool. And I think, you know, I'm really happy to see where the movement is. And more importantly, I'm really curious to see where the movement uh, is going. Yeah, I love the emergence of the new genres like barista-fi, coast-fi, slow-fi, all of these that acknowledge that having a big pile of money so you never have to earn another dollar again in life is one type of goal. But there are also the type of goals that say, okay, I'm I'm allowed to live a life where I have to earn less money or I don't need to earn money all 12 months of the year. And I think those are fine, too. Now, you mentioned books, and I wouldn't call our book Cashing Out a fire book, but like you said, it was heavily influenced by fire principles because our personal journey was heavily influenced by fire principles. And we actually wrote our book literally in the middle of the lockdown. And one of the things that we had to consider and predict was what would be the impact of COVID and the pandemic on the movement. Now, at that time in 2020, we had no idea it would last this long, (laughs) but we knew that some things would be universal. And that's really what informed the last chapter of the book, which by the way, not to brag, but JL Collins said that the last chapter of cashing out is worth buying the book in and of itself. So take that for what it's worth and buy our book. But if I was to zoom out and talk about the impact of the pandemic on the movement as a whole, I would think that ironically it's made it stronger. For sure, Those who think that it hasn't, usually have missed the point and assumed that FIRE was all about the money and the reason that we were pursuing this was for financial gain, but they're missing the bigger point. Like, look, we've all gotten three years older and financial independence doesn't remove you from the very human experience of getting older. A lot of the prominent voices in the movement have dealt with divorce, illnesses, and just the hardships that come with trying to raise a family with fragmented social support. Not having to worry about money makes the solutions a little more accessible to us, but like it doesn't remove the emotional weight that everyone is going through. And I think the reactions to the pandemic have been varied. Some people who were on the path took it as a sign to pull the plug and take that sabbatical from work. Our friend Josh has been cruising around the world for the past year and traveling to different conferences. And after doing that, he has the clarity that he needs and realize that he could actually be fine to sell his house back in Florida and pursue something different. My girl Jessica and her husband at the Pioneers just started an epic van life tour where they're traveling the country for a little while. They didn't sell the house, but like they realized that they could take off. Same with our friend Felicia and her husband. I mean, they're doing it in an RV, but it's the same idea of just like something can change along the way. We've also seen people go back to work and kind of use that income to slow down on their aggressiveness. As jobs responded to labor shortages and became more flexible, the stance on work has become less black and white. People are taking part-time gigs or remote positions while still investing in savings. So I think, again, those principles are strong and evergreen. 
Yeah. And, you know, I'll give a couple more examples because I, I can't help but to think about uh, Chad uh, and his family who decided that now was a great time or then was a great time to decide to spend a year uh, in Spain. Right. So they're traveling uh, Europe, but they're sort of centered in Spain and refining their understanding of uh, Spanish. They do have plans to come back, but right now that's really what they want to do. We know several people who have expatriated. We have some friends who live in Europe who are also, I'm thinking specifically of Ken and Mary, who Mm -hmm. are actively playing a role in trying to like help siblings and cousins who Mm -hmm. have all kinds of other issues. We had business partners who were trying to bring friends who are in war-torn countries, right? Again, it's the idea that they've built up enough money that would allow them to um, have the capacity and the resources to focus on other things, right? They get, they've earned the privilege to deprioritize a role that work has played in their life. And I think that's ultimately what our message has always been. Uh, And I think what more and more people in the movement have been really attaching themselves to. The other thing that I will say is that regardless of what's happening in the world, whether it's COVID or the economic conditions, the threat of a recession or whatever this moment is, I think what we're seeing is, and and I may struggle to communicate this, but it's almost as if people are realizing that all of these different ways of life can be mapped back to money. So there are some that are squarely focused on finance, things like investing, or side hustling, or some of the topics that we've been talking about recently, like insurance or point hacking, real estate. All those things are more squarely focused to finance, but there are other things that are much more just like focused on quality of life, like the idea of intentional living or wellness or minimalism. And what I think people are doing, which I'm really excited by, is realizing that all of these things are really just ingredients on a buffet that ultimately gets you on a path to financial independence. doesn't matter how you get there, what you decide to put on your plate, when you decide to put something on your plate or take it off, but they're all sort of, uh, I think what we're experiencing, I think is a bit of an awakening, if you will, where people are realizing that, hey, our time here is limited and I really, really want to make sure that I'm making the most of it and that I'm really spending my time focused on the things that value and more often than not, People are realizing that work and their career ambitions aren't necessarily the priorities that they thought they were. So they're trying to put themselves in a position where they can minimize those things without it creating a long-term disruption. When I think about even my own personal goals uh, just in the last couple of years, there are two things I would say that, that have sort of risen to the top. Minimalism, which I've always been mindful of, but I never really identified as a minimalist. However, in recent years, I've really come to appreciate what minimalism does and how it contributes to my life and how it just creates ease in everything that I do. And sobriety. Like, I certainly had my struggles with drinking and over-drinking in the last couple of years, trying to cope with running a business and raising a family and the stress of COVID and all those things. But the combination of wellness, sobriety, minimalism, and financial independence and the creator economy... All of those things at different points in time were on my plate and guiding us to the next stage in our life. And I think that's where a lot of people are right now. And so I'm glad that the movement, as people who are kind of at the forefront of it, at least for this generation, has sort of played their part in getting people here. And uh, we'll see what the future holds. All right. So we've kind of covered a brief history of FIRE. We've talked about some of the criticisms and our reaction to that. We've talked about fire post-COVID. And so now we're going to put on our fortune teller hats and (laughs) try to predict 
kind of what's next for fire. What do we see next for fire? And I know that I'm biased, but I'm also a bit of a cultural anthropologist and I'm very rarely wrong. So I'm going to throw it out there. (laughs) You should see his face. I am very rarely wrong. So I do think we're going to continue to see increased mainstream acceptance and adoption of fire and its principles for a couple of reasons. The first one is just general economic uncertainty and lower trust in jobs as the stable path. I don't think employment will go anywhere. I think people will always be looking for work in general. But I do think people are becoming more uncomfortable with the idea of a single stream of income as their lifeline. And I think the idea of untethering yourself from the whims of your employer is going to become more popular, like just because of the lack of trust. Right. I think there's also a generational shift. As younger generations enter the workforce, they're far more open to the idea of retiring early or pursuing financial independence because they don't have anything to unlearn. They've seen the narratives that we were sold about what a good job is supposed to be able to get you. They've seen that not work. And so they are far more eager and open to try something else. I think they also have very real evidence of people that are in their circle, whether it be an in-person or social circle, meaning social media media that took a, a risk or took a bet on themselves and it worked out very well for exactly. them. And so there's this alternative reality that is very close as opposed to it being like this ideal reality that like they can't really touch. Exactly. Like they, we all kind of know someone that took that risk and it worked out. And I think people are really enticed by that. Yeah. We know more of those people than we know the people who have taken the traditional path Correct. and it worked out in Correct. the same way, which leads to my third point tech and increased visibility. I mean, you talked about all of the ways that you can learn about money these days. It's no longer gatekept. But when you couple that with the powerful technology that makes it easier than ever to track and manage your finances, invest in the stock market, and even manage a side hustle, you have this perfect storm. You have greater awareness and more role models, which leads to a greater likelihood of people willing to try something new and just figure it out along the way. Yeah, I completely agree. I would add that I think one of the things that we'll see as I'm looking at, I don't, I don't have a, would you say? like A, a crystal ball? Well, oh, a fortune a, teller Yeah, hat. I don't have a fortune teller hat. I have a crystal ball. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. I don't even know what that is either. So I was like, I don't, I'm not identifying with that. Maybe I meant fortune cookie. The only hat I could think of was like the, the little hat that the monkey and Aladdin had on. Oh, and I was like, I don't know no, what she's talking I about. <laughs> but I, I, you know I, what I was thinking about was that video game where you used to have to put a quarter in and they tell you your fortune oh. at the fair. Wasn't he wearing a hat? Yeah. Yeah. That's okay. what I was thinking. Okay. So we're both in somewhere <laughs> in the Middle East. In a, Look, every metaphor doesn't work, y'all. Well, this is real time. I don't have an editor. This is how you know I'm listening to you. I don't know what a fortune teller <laughs> is. If you do, leave us a Go on with your video. prediction. Anyway, uh, I predict as I'm looking into my crystal ball, I, I think we're going to see an evolution of the term retirement um, or a yes. bending of the of the word retirement. I think even when you think about, you know, I remember early in my corporate career, there was your typical bashing of people who would take gap years. It was just something for rich college grads. They don't have to go to work immediately. They're going to go take a, a year and travel uh, Europe or backpack through South America or something like that. And I think what people are realizing is that gap years aren't just for college grads. I think it's also for grieving working adults. It's for parents. Mm -hmm. It's for people who are going through what we all call adulting, right? Anyone who can afford it can and should take that time away because I think there's more evidence today that shows how 
avoiding taking care of yourself or avoiding taking that year can really have a, no, a negative long-term effect on your well-being. And in some cases, your earning potential, right? I think we'll also start to see a greater acceptance of, I'm just calling it flexible work. Like, again, I'm predicting the future. There's not really a term for it, but like less tried and true traditional nine to five work and much more part-time work, much more freelancing work. Contract work. Uh, contract work. I think we're also going to see much more digital entrepreneurship. I also think, and I'm really excited about this one, is a complete reevaluation of what employee benefits look like. Because you could argue that employee benefits are companies' efforts to offer a set of compensation incentives based on what they believe those needs are. And now that those needs have changed or what used to be a need or a desire isn't there anymore, they're going to have to switch it up in order to attract and retain people who want to be uh, traditionally employed in some capacity. And I think we're already starting to see that, especially for people, quite frankly, like us, who've built platforms and these opportunities for employment feel much more like collaborations, right? Where it's like, I bring something of value to the table. We have something and I don't just want your talent. I want your name. I want your likeness. I want your network. I want all of the things that you bring to the table and I'm willing to pay you for it without arguably the cost or the sort of pains that oftentimes come with unemployment. And again, that's only offered to you when you look at the traditional model of the traditional offer and say, well, that's not attractive to me because it constrains my ability to do any of the other things that are important to me. Um, so I think you're going to see more things like debt cancellation, right? That's really interesting to me because to your point, if we can't agree on a government to cancel student loan debt, like Correct. what if companies offered that as a benefit? You Correct. know, they already offer tuition reimbursement. Correct. Why not a version of that to be like, yo, like we'll also pay down your student loans or negotiate a rate with your lender. If that's what the talent demands. The and if the talent says, I don't want any of the, all the things that are on page seven through 20 of the employee benefit package. I don't want those things. Yeah. You can get rid of that. I'm not going to those things. I don't want those things. I don't need those things. If you can meet me here, whether it's in comp or it's through in some type of debt cancellation or whatever it is, I think that that's really the world that we're going to see. And again, I, I connect all of that back to this new sort of mindfulness or awareness of the idea of financial independence. Because mm-hmm. prior to that, people really sort of put their retirement in the hands of their employer. And now that it's not solely there anymore, people have retained that control. And so they are asking different questions and making different demands. So I see it really uh, as a positive thing. Awesome. All right. My prediction is that we'll see the RE part of the acronym shift from retire early to retire eventually. Because look, at this point, Retirement alone is out of reach for so many people. And with all the shifts that we just mentioned, the timeline is less and less relevant. So the keeping the five part, keeping the financial independence part ensures that folks are still focused on the ultimate goal, which is being able to work on their own terms and pursue work that is fulfilling and meaningful to them. But the shift in the RE would acknowledge that there's room for the people who still want to work and contribute to society in a meaningful way. Ultimately, it's a recognition that financial independence is just a means to an end rather than the right. end itself, which is how it's been traditionally kind of positioned. Yeah. I also think that retire eventually is more employer friendly and adds some balance to the lopsided labor agreement that exists today. I think it just helps 
mitigate some of the risks associated with this idea of never earning income again. And when you say retire eventually, it kind of puts both you and the employer on the hook for the same goal, where it's like, look, eventually I want to retire. I'm not saying it's going to be early or late, just like help me out here. You know what I like about that is that it acknowledges that um, a couple of things that retirement is still like, to your point, just out of reach for most people. Right. And we just accept that as a norm. Most of the people that retire are actually early retirees. They are. Right. The vast <laughs> we said majority that on another of people episode. who are, everyone else is just like sort of working and they are underretired, underfunded, and or still working in old age. Uh, so like, I, I like that because it acknowledges the fact that like, hey, I'm going to really put you on this path. Like in a perfect world, we shouldn't have to add any other descriptor. Right. It should just be fur. Right, FIR, but like this, this acknowledgement that hey, like all right, you may not be able to retire in your thirties and forties, but we we can do our part to help get you there. Exactly. Period, or eventually. To your point, I think the one thing that uh, I think uh, not only I'll say uh, is is going to happen in the future because we're starting to see bits and pieces of it now is greater awareness of the role that mental health plays. Um, at work and that being an underlying motivation for why so many people are pursuing financial independence. Um, Specifically, I'm talking about things like burnout and stress. We've been in this community for a long time. Some of this is hush, but there are so many people who are in this movement, who are leaders of this movement, who openly struggle with anxiety, ADHD, burnout, or being neurodivergent. And workplaces as they exist today have done a horrible job of accounting for any of this, right? We write these things off. We, in some cases, just dismiss them as people not being driven. Uh, And COVID really made it worse. There was like this expectation that people just sort of snap out of it, still get the job done, put a mask on and pretend that everything was okay. And the reality is like, it really, really made things worse. People's homes were not designed for that. They were still responsible for taking care of their families. They were still responsible for producing despite the literal threat of facing like death on a regular basis. And so all of that to say, I think there's going to be a bit of an an acknowledgement that, hey, these workplace environments, like while you've done things like, you know, make the open plan and all that stuff, like a lot of this stuff is really, really harmful. And we're not just talking about blue collar work and people who work in factories. Like a lot of these corporate jobs have been proven to be really, really harmful to our health, not just mental, but also physical. And so all of these things combined, I think, are really going to converge with the financial independence movement as a way for people to escape it. On top of that, I think what we're going to see is an increased awareness of the negative impact that work as it exists today has on working families. Right. Right. One in four companies offer paid family leave. One in four. Right. That means... The vast majority of people have limited or zero access to that. They have a child and almost immediately the clock starts ticking for them to figure out a way to afford and provide childcare for their child or children in the case that you have multiple while the parents get up and go to work. That model was completely disrupted over COVID. And so all of that to say like this world where people are forced to go to work, not earn enough money to pay for childcare, which forces people to not work, has forced people to envision a life where work as it exists today is just not a part of their life. And so all of that, I think, led people to 
the same sort of atmosphere or blogosphere, if you will, where financial independence lives today. And I think it's going to bring a lot more people into the movement. And as a result, it's going to force a lot of employees, going back to my earlier point, to offer a different set of incentives that makes it make sense for people to actually want to come to work. But I think more importantly, the idea that people are putting their lives at risk, going back to my earlier point, you know, when we say that the work is hazardous, like literally the U.S. Surgeon General just issued a Surgeon General's warning. When I say Surgeon General warning, most people immediately think about the words that are on the back of cigarettes, like this threat that, hey, we recognize that there's something bad that is alive and well, and we want to make sure that we help get the word out for Americans to make sure that they are not putting themselves at risk. That was issued in late 2022 about workplace environments in response to the mental health crisis that we're in. And I say this with a little bit of anger. No one's talking about it, right? Like this is 2023 and we are literally not talking about the fact that we have openly admitted as a country that work is harmful to the vast majority of Americans. So when we talk about the idea that there's a movement of people who figured out that they don't want to do too much of that, right. that's not an extreme thought. That's called people putting their well-being ahead of the option to earn more money. Whatever you want to call that, I think I'm all for it. And I think that's the trajectory of this particular movement. Yes. Now, that's a final thought. I should have made that my final thought. (laughs) I might do that, but I'll let you go first. All right. So my final thought is around my evolution in calling this a movement, because I used to be very wary of calling it a movement because I couldn't see how we were organizing to make this huge sweeping social change. And I've since changed my stance because I feel like one, there are more people today that have a desire for purpose and meaning because that hole used to be filled up by their jobs. And now it's not, but also because social change and progress has always been nonlinear and messy. And what financial independence allows you to do is have your cake and eat it too. You're able to pursue work that is fulfilling and meaningful while building wealth while creating a positive impact on the world without risking your livelihood. And so in that way, it's a win, win, win. Yeah, I I completely agree. I'm going to go out on the limb here and say that the peak of the financial independence movement is actually already here or it's like right around the corner. And that's not to say that it won't be a thing anymore, but I think the sign that it has reached mass adoption is not going to be like this big reward. It's not like a bunch of fireworks go off. It's like, oh, wow. It's like, no, you actually just start to see the incorporation and adoption of the mindset into people's everyday lives. Now, whether or not they identify with those things or not is irrelevant. But a recent study showed that, uh, I think this was in the Washington Post, but that more men took leave, paid or not, to help raise their children in the last five years than ever before. We saw a 183% increase of men taking leave to care for their children in the last five years. Secondly, we know that we've seen more first-time investors and people starting businesses in the last two years. Mm -hmm. Why? People are waking up and realizing that there are more ways to earn money than going to work, right? Again, these are all elements that are tied to the financial independence movement. And the last one I'll say is that just the general idea that like topics that were once taboo are no longer taboo, right? The idea of talking about money, well, today we've got more books, podcasts, platforms, blogs than ever before. The idea of job hopping as a way to earn more money, 
Gosh, I remember in my early years, that was completely taboo. You wouldn't dare talk about that in public. Now people are saying, actually, that's the best way to get a raise. When your boss doesn't want to give it to you, go find another buyer. Yes. This is the world that we live in. And it actually has been statistically proven that quitters are driving Correct. the closing of the wage gap. Correct. Correct. More than government policy Absolutely. or any of those other things, right? And then there's also just like people speaking up about the role or the negative impact that work is having on their life, whether it's the, the environment being toxic and whether that toxicity is being led by a bad manager, a bad culture, or just like the physical workspace. All of those things are leading people to reevaluate what work looks like. When I was in my younger years, people would talk about Europeans and them taking naps and how the United States was so much better and so much more productive because, you know, we did do those things. And now we're all very much becoming a little bit more European. We're actually realizing there's nothing wrong with spending time with your children. There's nothing wrong with taking sabbaticals. There's nothing wrong with taking a siesta, a nap, call it whatever you want. But we're recognizing that we don't have to be so completely work obsessed as we were before. And I think that's ultimately what this financial independence movement is about. It's not anti-work. It's recognizing that work is an obstacle that gets in the way of people fulfilling several of the other values that they hold near and dear to them. So I love that point, because even when you think about movements like the civil rights movement, the milestones aren't called out until hindsight. Like we make we make sense of what happened during that time by saying, oh, it was the Equal Votes Act or it was MLK's assassination that led to this thing. But like if those similar milestones are happening in our financial world. We won't know, like we won't know what to call it for 10 more years. We won't know what the impact of the great resignation or these shifts in male presence in families. We won't know what to call that for another five years, but mark our words. Yeah. We can thank the fire movement for leading the way. And hopefully a future documentarian inserts this clip and says, (laughs) well, Julian knew he called it. He had on his fortune teller hat. He had on his fortune teller hat. And he predicted it was going to happen. And here we are. All right. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Rich and Regular podcast presented by Success. I hope today's episode on fire lit a little spark under ya. And if it did, head on over to the Apple ratings and review page and leave us a five star rating and review. We will see y'all next week.